The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Dogen's 300 Koan Shilbegenso. Buddha's teaching of a lifetime, the main case. Master Yunmen was once asked by a student, what is the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime? Yunmen said, he teaches facing one. The monastic said, what happens if he has no listener or nothing to talk about? Yunmen said, he teaches upside down. Commentary. Since the teachings are always manifested in accord with the times and seasons, causes and conditions, Yunmen says, he teaches facing one. 47 years of the Buddha's teaching comes down to just this. But say, what does teaching facing one mean? The monastic is an adept, so he presses the old master and asks for more instruction. This time, Yunmen says, the Buddha teaches upside down. His whole intent is to knock out the wedges and pull out the nails for the student. But say, what does teaching upside down mean? If you're able to say a word of Zen on this matter, I'll grant that you're able to walk hand in hand, not only with you men, but with old yellow-faced Gautama as well. Daroshi's poem. Facing one, upside down. The differences between them are night and day. Dividing the river, Half is above the falls, half is below. Is this reverberating a little bit? Okay, well, I'm not controlling it anyway, so. <laughs> Whoever has that, okay. <laughs> so we are concluding our enlightenment vigil of the Buddha. It's traditionally, recognized on the 8th, so this weekend the vigil will happen at the temple. But we do it in alignment with, well actually we did it this weekend because I'm away next weekend, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but we do it around the 8th. And so, <laughs> so we've been sitting all weekend since we began on Friday evening. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Buddha and his teachings. This koan in the Blue Cliff Record is separated into two different koans. They're taken up one at a time. Here they're brought together. So we have many, many sutras that are attributed to the Buddha based on the um, essentially photographic memory of, the, of Ananda and who was his attendant for so many years, who after the Buddha's death helped to record these. And they continued to be recorded orally. In other words, people remembered them. And then they were eventually written down. But in one of those, there are several sutras in which the Buddha talks about his own journey um, to awakening. And here the Buddha says, before my awakening was when I was still an unawakened Bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, Household life is confining, a dusty path. Life gone forth is the open air. It isn't easy living in a home to practice the holy life, totally perfect, pure, a polished shell. 
What if I, having shaved off my hair and beard and putting on the ochre robe, were to go forth from the household life into homelessness? So at a later time, when I was still young and black-haired and endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life, and having shaved off my hair and beard, and though my parents wished otherwise and were grieving with tears on their faces, I put on the ochre robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness. And this sort of belies that traditional story of the Buddha sneaking out in the middle of the night with his attendant taking him, that he left in the full knowledge that his, of his parents and his family, in fact, it's, he was said to have only had a child after some years of marriage, and there's, I've heard scholars conjecture whether, whether somehow that conception was held off because they suspected that once the child was born and there was an heir, that he would leave, and he did. And I was thinking about the Buddha's life and the lives of individuals throughout human history that have changed the world. And sometimes those people have lived at the depths of human depravity, functioning within the worst aspects of what human beings can think and say and do and manifest. And others who have lived at the heights of human potential, of wisdom and compassion. But individuals themselves don't change anything, right? An individual is just an individual. No matter how wise they are, no matter how depraved they might be, that the changes that happen, happen when they come into contact with others who are influenced by them, who are in a sense brought into their field, into their vision, and become actively active agents we might say, of that vision. It happens in certain times and places, and in that way has certain reaches of influence. In spiritual practice, or in those, let's say, those higher, more virtuous realms of human activity, when people's lives are changed, those lives change other lives. And they can happen in ways that the people whose lives are changed don't even recognize at first, just by being in the presence of someone, by seeing someone's example. We are affected because we're sentient beings, right? We're experiencing through our senses. We feel, we see, we hear, we reflect. So Gautama, before he was the Buddha, left home to practice the holy life, in his own words. So he did leave his family behind. He caused some sadness and pain. He left a wife, a young wife, a child, newly born. He left a life that was supposed to have been his ultimately. His role in his social order was to succeed from his father's role of responsibility and to be a warrior. So think about that. The Buddha was being trained to be a warrior. And the Shakyan clan did have many battles during the time of the Buddha's life after he had left home. And devastating ones. That would have been his life. It was to have been his life. And when he left, that created a vacuum. 
right? That's what happens. And many people make sacrifices, you know? I mean, in a sense, anytime we make a, a full-throated, a wholehearted commitment to something, which is going to require time and energy and sustained commitment, we are going to do that thing, and there are other things we're not going to do or not do them as deeply. And sometimes those actions will fall onto others, sometimes our families, sometimes depends on what our particular circle is. And so when we do that, we should make sure that we are making that sacrifice worthy of its consequence so that whatever we are not doing, whatever we are not giving in those particular ways, we are giving back in other ways. The Buddha taught for many decades. We're quite fortunate in that, that he had a long life in which he was teaching virtually every day, you know, these hundreds of sutras, and that he was successful in establishing a sangha that was different than it ever existed. The inclusion of women, the inclusion of people that that were sort of, you know, the Buddha was non-discriminating up to a point. He did, I've read that at one point, uh, a, a um, doctor of one of his wealthier patrons offered to be the doctor, the attending physician for the Sangha. And, and so, and that was quite a job, <laughs> as you can imagine. And that the Buddha was concerned that, that that would attract a lot of people who needed healing, but not necessarily seeking Buddha Dharma. And so there were some rules about who could be eligible for ordination in terms of their physical state and such. So there were some requirements in terms of age, and they couldn't be um, have other obligations that they needed to fulfill. But he, he really accepted people from all strata of life, all social positions. I mean, Angulimala is one of the great examples of a hor- horrendous, horrific figure, a killer of many people, that the Buddha had influence over, according to the story, and transformed his life, and he became ordained, and yet the karma of his life had not yet been exhausted. And so he, whenever he, Angulimala went out to beg for food, he received the vitriol and the, the pain and the anguish of the communities who had suffered under his actions. And he went to the Buddha and asked for the Buddha to help, and the Buddha said, look, this is the karma that you have created. You have to bear this. I cannot do that. The fact that you have, have transformed yourself and have made these vows and are living your life in this way does not immediately undo all of that karma. So what is the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime? Yunman says, he teaches facing one. In another translation, it says, an appropriate statement which is, in a way, very inviting, but it also gives rein to all kinds of ideas and conceptual possibilities. Tenke Denson, in his commentary on that, said, in response to an appropriate statement, said, this is not appropriateness in the relative sense, nor in the absolute sense, nor in any sense that you can imagine.
He teaches facing one. And that way of describing our fundamental nature, the essence of all things as being undivided, that form is emptiness, that that emptiness, that one, that unity, shunyata, when we speak of it as one, it's, it's not great, right? Because one is something. One is one, right? It's not two, it's one. And so even if we understand that that one means all-inclusive of everything, everything, is nothing else, there's nothing outside of that, it's still hard to not see it as an object. But this is how it was translated. He teaches facing one. But if all is one, if all is empty of any fixed characteristic, then how can that be faced? Wind has no appearance. It cannot be grasped. It is empty in that sense, but it cools you when you're hot. When it's strong, it'll bring down trees. Space can't be seen or felt, and yet we pass through it constantly. He teaches facing oneness. Facing one. Dadaroshi's comment to this is, when the ancients got here, they did not stay. In the Buddha's own teaching, when he says, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva, bodhisattva is a term that preceded the Mahayana tradition. And it referred to a seeker, a practitioner who through countless lifetimes was following the Buddhist path, the Dharma path, or was just developing this, themselves so that they could get to the point where they could encounter the Dharma and eventually realize enlightenment. But it didn't yet have the connotation, all the breadth and depth of meaning that it took on within the Mahayana, of the, being, the great being who aspires and commits themselves to alleviating the suffering of self and others equally. But we all begin within the sort of place of our samsara, our self-clinging, our false views. The Buddha said, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, meaning unenlightened, subject to his own thoughts and reactivity and opinions and impulses, discriminating consciousness, everything that we encounter in ourselves. And he speaks about the demands of his life, right? Family, children, responsibilities, work, obligations, community, and that he experienced those as seeming to be confining, dusty, he referred to them as. And he recognized, but recognized that the more things we have in our life, the more they need attention. I think I remember correctly that in Walden, Thoreau said at one point he found some interesting stones that he liked the shape and the beauty of, and he brought them in and put them on his writing desk. But then he realized that they collected dust. And he thought, is that really how I want to use my time? <laughs> so everything needs attention, even if it's sitting still. And so that attention comes from us. We give it attention, and while we're giving attention to that, Right, that it, that it, it's going to that, it's not going to something else. That's just a reality. And the more things we have, the more that attention will be spread around, dispersed. 
And so in the Eight Awarenesses, the Buddha talks about having few desires and knowing which desires to have. What are the important ones? What are the important things that we need in our lives to have rich, meaningful, fulfilling lives and lives of service? And what are the things that maybe aren't so important? And then we also hold those in sort of relative degrees of attention. So during session, we, and just during the normal course of a week in training, you know, the eight gates of training is the way we train, but we don't give equal attention to all of those. They're all important, but they're important differently. And that's kind of how we navigate our lives. And so the Buddha was recognizing that. And that's true for all of us. You know, when those of you who live at home come here to practice, like with this vigil or during session, you leave your work responsibilities, right? You don't check your phone. You don't check your email. You're not getting calls from work or home unless it's an emergency. But for the monastics, that's not true. We don't leave home, right? It's right here. And so whatever our work is, it's still there every day. And that is sometimes creates more pressure, right? More dust, we might say, for the monastics. But it also then is great training because we're learning how to really integrate that from within the life that we're living every day. Although, again, that's, you know, given a different amount of attention or work, that is. So this is a factor of everyday life, the time that we give to things, these things that are important, that are vital, But the real question is, why is it so easy that we get to get entangled and conflicted and consumed and preoccupied? Is it the thing that we're doing that is distracting us or becoming all-consuming? If that were true, then there's nothing we can do about it. We will always be distracted. We will always be preoccupied because it's in the thing itself. Well, obviously that's not true. So there's something about our relationship with all of the, the aspects of our life, internal and external. They all have the same nature. Every form has the nature of emptiness. And yet they don't appear the same in appearance themselves, but also in, more importantly, how we relate to it, how we react to it, what our discriminating consciousness does to it. That's our karma. What it means to us, how we relate to it, whether we like or dislike it, what it means about me, all the ways I have responded to that throughout my life, the associations, the habits, that's really what we're experiencing. So the Buddha left home. Right? And he said, having thus gone forth in search of what might be skillful, Seeking the unexcelled state of sublime peace, I went to Alada Kalama, who was a very prominent teacher. And on arrival said to him, friend Kalama, I want to practice in this dharma and this discipline. And so obviously he must have been checking things out, right? I mean, we don't get that part of the story, but he must have been meeting other people, talking to other people. You know, who have you studied with? What's going on? What is this person's teaching? So he very specifically went to Alada Kalama and was taught in particular aspects of meditation and according to his telling, accomplished them. 
to the point where his teacher said, you have realized what I have realized. He said, why don't you share with me, co-teach in this community, we'll lead it together. The Buddha said, but the thought occurred to me, this dharma does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to nirvana, to direct knowledge, to awakening, but only to the reappearance in the dimension of nothingness. And so dissatisfied with that dharma, I left. And it's really, to me, fascinating that he was, having left everything, now he has a new community, a new possibility of a place and a position, right? It's dharma, it's a spiritual practice. He's been given a role of leadership. He was probably used to that, right? There was something about that probably felt very familiar to him, almost inevitable. He spent his whole life expecting to grow up and be given, handed over that role of leadership. He was approved by his teacher, but he did not approve himself. And to think about staying true to our intention, to what is most important. Kazan Roshi sa says, Kazan Zenji says, it is not necessary to ask about others. Just look back on your own determination of mind, your first determination of mind, and remember what is true and what is not true. You know, there were times where I'd be sitting in the Zendo during session and I'd feel competitive of other people. This one's spending more time in Doksan. They're getting special attention. Right? What's going on? Right? Or this one, this one over here is very sharp, right? Sharper than I am. Or this one is more compassionate than I am, right? All of this. And then I would stop and think, okay, is that really why I came here? Was to compete? No, it wasn't. And that would help to kind of realign, right? In a sense, I was remembering my first determination. What, why am I here? Is that why I'm here? No, that's not why I'm here. So why am I getting caught up in this? Kazan says, so this is why it said it's hard to be as careful of the end as of the beginning. If one would really be as a beginner, who would not become a person of the way? And so it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. We need to study with a teacher to be guided and to be affirmed, to be, have our experiences be recognized as either skillful or not skillful, what to strengthen, what to let go of, because sometimes we don't know. We're experiencing things for the first time. We don't know whether this is this enlightenment, is this, you know, something significant, or is this not? And so it's important to have that affirmation, confirmation from the teacher, but also we need to be approving ourselves. And this is what the Buddha was apparently quite good at. So then he went on to study with another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta, and told of essentially the exact same story. He wanted to study his Dharma, he learned the practices, he accomplished them, became very sort of noteworthy in that Sangha, his teacher said, you have accomplished what I have realized. Share this seat with me. And the Buddha said, no, I have not yet found what I am seeking. And so then he went on to practice asceticism. And it's interesting how he talks about that because it kind of gives us a window into his process. Because remember, there's no Buddhism yet. Right? There's no path. 
there's just communities and teachers and people just doing stuff out there. And there was a lot of that going on at that time. And so perhaps there were teachings and paths within those communities, but, and that's what he was exploring, but he did not have a path yet. And so he says, when he began to banded together with this group of ascetics, he asked, he's thinking, and he says, how is it for the contemplative who lives withdrawn from sensuality in the body and mind? and whose desire and infatuation and urge and thirst and fever for sensuality, for all of our sense experiences and pleasures, is relinquished and stilled. Whether or not they feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, they are capable of knowledge, vision, and unexcelled self-awakening. This is how he's seen the ascetic path. They have to go through all these austerities, right, which might be very painful, racking, pierceful, piercing, but in that way, they become capable of knowledge and vision and unexcelled self-awakening. And so he got down to work. And he said, I thought, suppose that I, clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth, were to beat down and constrain and crush my mind with awareness. And so, clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of the mouth, I beat down and constrained and crushed my mind with my awareness. And he took that to the point at which he felt like he had exhausted the limit of that particular practice and realized, just as with these other teachers, that that was not bringing him to his liberation. And so he says, well, suppose if I were to become absorbed in the trance of not breathing. And so I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my nose and mouth. And if you look at the sutra, he goes into great detail and he conveys the sense of painful, racking, piercing experiences that he was having. And then again, he came to that same conclusion. And then he says, well, suppose I were to only take a little food at a time, only a handful at a time. And then he goes into great detail, kind of gruesome detail, I would say, about the extent to which, in fact, I was thinking about that, that he, after that period in which he was basically like a skeleton and almost dead, that he lived such a long life. You know, you'd think that would have been done some irreparable damage. But again, he came to the point, and he basically said, it's not humanly possible to do take this further than I have done and still stay alive. So you just get a window into his attitude. Because again, remember, he had no one to guide him. So how was he to know if this was not a viable path or if it was a viable path, but he just needed to take it further? How would he know? Unless he took it to the point where he felt like it was in an extreme that he saw the evidence of which. And part of the wonder of that or the gift of that, I would say, is we don't have to do that, right? If we were so inclined. <laughs> and, you know, coming in our time of, you know, like where pleasure is what it's all about, never being uncomfortable, this can seem really over the top, right? Nothing that we would ever encourage 
and that he didn't encourage, right? He said, no, this is a middle way. So he, he very clearly renounced that form of practice. But what it's also just showing us is this person who was so committed to their own liberation and had the capacity to guide themselves. That's so quite unusual, right? I mean, we have to guide ourselves to a significant degree within this path. And all of the sort of abundance of teachings and practices and guidance that they provide, even if we don't have a teacher, he did not have that. And then after all of that, he said, whatever contemplatives in the past have felt this due kind of pain, due to their striving. This is the utmost. What I'm experiencing is the utmost. None have been greater than this. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any sublime, liberated human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of a noble one. Could there be another path? And then he remembered a time long ago when he was a young boy and his community was tending to the harvest or preparing to plant, and he was sitting under a true tree, and he says, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, and then quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities. In other words, his mind just was sort of very naturally, innocently dropping into a very calm state. He said, I entered and remained in what he later called the first jhana, the first level of meditation. And then he said, could this be a path to awakening? And then he said, following on that memory came the realization, this is the path. And to think about how in that moment, after all of that that he had practiced, and quite possibly because he had done all of this, so he had kind of gone through the extremes of all of these viable paths that were available to him. And then that recollection comes up in that moment. And he says, that is the path. And so I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, that has nothing to do with pursuing desires or unskillful mental qualities? And then he thought to himself, I am no longer afraid. I am not afraid of that. And so suppose that I now take some solid food, some rice, some porridge, and then he found a place that, as he said, was secluded and conducive to a place of striving. It's really an amazing story, right? And that in our own smaller ways, more humble ways, but heartfelt, sincere, dedicated, sustained, we go through our own process, right? Whatever the things that we pursued, the things we gave importance to, the paths that we followed, the things that we tried. What is the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime? Yunman says he teaches facing one. The one who practices is the one who is free of self already, is the one that is facing all things in their original Dharma state. 
all things also are self-liberated. Beyond ideas of unity, emptiness, oneness. And in that place, the question and the answer of the subject, object, merge. They don't merge. They're just realized to be as they always have been. The Buddha teaches facing one. But why does Dadarushi say when the ancients got here, they did not stay? In the Prajnaparamita Sutra, it says this over and over again, points to this over and over again, but there's a passage where the Buddha says, if a, it is because a bodhisattva contemplates emptiness, which allows, gives rise to all, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but, but gives rise to all of the best qualities, all of the virtues arise from this emptiness because nothing is fixed, because everything is workable. Everything is always in a state of change. If that weren't true, we would be literally wasting our time. Literally, because there would be nothing we could do. Because everything is impermanent, which is just an expression of emptiness, all of this is possible. But then the Buddha goes on to say that in contemplating, practicing, striving to realize that emptiness so that we can realize that encumbrances, suffering, doesn't exist apart from our creating it and others creating it. That we should not, as the Buddha says, take that to its ultimate conclusion, which by which he means think that that is complete enlightenment. Right? In the identity of relative and absolute, it says to realize emptiness, to realize the absolute is not yet enlightenment. Why? Why did the ancients not agree to stay in teaching facing one? And the Buddha goes on to say, without losing oneself in this concentration on emptiness, you tie your mind to an objective support, compassion, and determine that you will take hold or realize perfect wisdom rather than dwelling in emptiness or attaching to emptiness. And he tells, he draws a simile to a parent who has all of these well in debt, all of these good qualities and is wise and compassionate and has really developed themselves to a high degree. And they take their family, say, let's go on a journey. And they go on a journey deep into the mountains. And when they get into the mountains, they reach some really difficult, situations that are frightening and dangerous. And the Buddha says, do you think the parent just leaves the family behind? And he says, no, of course they don't. The parent stays and says, don't, don't be afraid. Because the parent has an understanding of these dangers. And the parent says, I will guide you through these dangers. We will find our way through this. And even if they get larger, greater, more dangerous, that they don't leave. And he's using that as a way of describing that heart of the, of the bodhisattva, which would not be possible, right? If that bodhisattva, who would no longer be a bodhisattva, was attached to dwelling in emptiness, which is being used here to really refer to a self-liberation, right? Just wanting to realize myself, 
liberate myself, be free myself, but not on an equal basis want to serve others. What happens if there is no listener, nothing to talk about? Yunman says, the Buddha teaches upside down. What does that mean? Yunman has a very particular style and uses very short phrases often, oftentimes one word, that's very hard to bite into, right? In fact, one of the characteristics of, instead of all of Yunman's teaching is that it, it um, cuts off the myriad streams, right? It doesn't give your intellect anything to grab onto, which is never quite true, right? Because our intellect can bite into anything, right? <laughs> but it doesn't make it easy. He teaches upside down. So leaving behind all reason, all explanations, then we see everything moves in its natural state. Upside down only makes sense if you're attached to the ground as being ground, right? When a cloud floats by, is it right side up or upside down? Is the ocean right side up to the sky or upside down? Is it looking upwards or looking downwards? At this very moment, are you moving into life? Or are you moving towards your death? Are we practicing moving away from delusion and moving towards enlightenment? That's why she says, facing one upside down, the difference between them is night and day. And so we chant this poem, this teaching about the identity of relative and absolute which are ways of talking about aspects of one thing. And so he says, dividing the river, half is above the falls, half is below the falls. And so to divide the river above and below the falls, we can do that so that we can talk about what's going on on this side, we can talk about what's going on on that side, but we should never confuse that for meaning that there are two rivers. Sometimes students will ask, why is it important to realize emptiness? What does it have to do with my life? And that's a valid question when emptiness is an abstract conceptual idea and your life is very vivid, very present, very tangible, very demanding. And so what that means is we have to bring emptiness and all of the teachings out of the realm of the conceptual, of the abstract, of the philosophical, which is never where they were meant to, to be, to belong, to live. You know, think about, I was thinking about the fact that in, with this service this morning, that the Buddha, I mean the Buddha, right? He's the Buddha. And yet Buddhism you know, certainly holds the Buddha in high regard, but does not place the Buddha in the front of every moment, of every teaching, of every image. The Buddha, you know, has a central place, but shares the stage, right? Bodhisattvas. And in fact, the teachings say, as important as the Buddha was, it's our teacher who's actually teaching us today, now, 
And I think that would probably be exactly as the Buddha would have it. When he was dying and his students were surrounding him in very distressed and distraught at his leaving, you know, in so many words, he was like, wait a minute, haven't you been listening? <laughs> it's not about me. And so that question of why is emptiness important? I mean, ask it to bring it in a little bit. When you are caught in something that is impacting you, impinging upon your well-being, your mind, your emotion, your body, keeping you up at night, creating distance and division between you and another person or others, why is it important to let go of that? That's your answer. The reason you can do that, the reason that can be done is because the nature of all of that symphony of struggle is empty. Does not abide, has no inherent characteristic, nothing intrinsic, no quality. It is not something that is happening apart from us. And because of that, we can practice. We can realize that we can be liberated. And the fact that practice develops over time and we see our lives transforming, as I was speaking about this morning, is a testimony to that. It's showing us that when we practice in accord with the nature of things and ourselves, the effect of that is non-accumulation of dukkha, is opening the heart. There's one river, one water, one flowing, one dharma, one life, one body that appears in an infinite variety of ways. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Right? And yes, that means we have to take the good with the bad. It's like in a relationship, an intimate relationship. You know, we're entering deeply into each other's karma. And to love that person is to take, is to accept, take in the whole of that person, knowing I am going to be affected by you, you are going to be affected by me. Let's try and make that as good as we can. It's not always going to be perfect. We don't know what happens in the future. It could get harder. That's the way a sangha works. We take, and it's not that we take it on in terms of, in our, in our attachment, we, but we, we enter into that field. Because that's the only place we can come into contact. We can have a life. And so. So what is required of us? A dauntless heart? A lion's roar, a great mother's compassion. May my vows, may your vows be seen, be felt, be alive. We can do that for each other. We can do that for ourselves. That's, I will say, we are doing that. And that is a gift.
and kind of how it should be, right? It is an offering, but it shouldn't be, you know, a special once a year kind of thing. You know, you get gifts on your birthday, the rest of the year it's a crapshoot. <laughs> right? <laughs> So, so thank you for this day. Thank you for the vigil for all of you who were part of this. You know, it's important, these, these moments that we have when we come together each year, some of them quite regular, others less so. Something is created. And each of these actions is part of that river, part of that ocean, that all together makes up what we call practice, all together makes up our experience of life. That's what allows it to get in deep. Right. And that's what, that's what daily practice is, trying to make contact in all the ways that you can, within your own home, with work, all the ways you can bring the Dharma to mind, to bring your intention into your voice. Right, to bring your mindfulness into contact with what's in front of you. All of those moments are the similar, right? Some of them are very small and simple. Some of them are much larger. But they all are feeding into that one body, that one body, that one ocean, right? That's how life is transformed. That's how, when students say, how do I integrate the Dharma with my life? That's how we do it. Innumerable moments that it's not just being mindful of whatever we're doing in the moment, which is always important, but it's actively and deliberately bringing our mind into an awareness of the Dharma, of the teachings, of wisdom and compassion, of what is possible, of what is important. So. And now there's time for rest. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.